You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Jay McClelland, who's a professor at Stanford University in the Psychology Department and director of the Center for Mind, Brain, Computation, and Technology at Stanford. His research addresses a broad range of topics in cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience, including perception and perceptual decision-making, learning and memory, language and reading, semantic and mathematical cognition, and cognitive development. Among many other achievements and recognitions, Jay has received the Heineken Prize for Cognitive Science and the Rummelhart Prize for Contributions to the Theoretical Foundations of Human Cognition. His work has been cited over 115,000 times and includes the two-volume Parallel Distributed Processing book that he wrote with David Rummelhart, which is often called the Bible of Connectionism and contains ideas that are fundamental to how we think about neural networks today. Jay's PhD thesis is titled Preliminary Letter Identification in the Perception of Words and Nonwords, which he completed in 1975 at the University of Pennsylvania. His thesis investigates the word superiority effect, the phenomenon that people have better recognition of letters presented within words as compared to isolated letters or to letters in nonwords. Specifically, he looks into whether when we perceive a word, we first identify, recognize, or perceive its constituent letters. We talk about how his early interests in psychology led to his work in the PhD, and how the work in the thesis connects with the influential interactive activation model, which is a model of the word superiority effect. Then we discuss the path from there to his work on parallel distributed processing, or PDP, which views cognitive processes as arising from interactions of neurons through synaptic connections, with the knowledge that governs processing stored in the connection strengths and acquired gradually through experience. He provides the backstory of working with David Rummelhart and Jeff Hinton and the three key principles behind PDP, which has had an immeasurable impact on the scientific interest in connectionism and in turn, deep learning as we know it today. It was an honor to have the chance to speak with Jay, and I hope you enjoy the many historical points and ideas that we cover in this interview. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, Go to patreon.com slash thesis review, where you can support at three tiers, reader, scholar, or laureate. Or you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. Please do consider supporting the show, and thank you to the new Patreon members. As always, there are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Jay McClelland with Preliminary Letter Identification in the perception of words and non-words on the thesis review. Mm-hmm.
in your PhD and in your subsequent research, uh, you look into models and methods that try to gain an understanding of both human cognition as well as how we could build cognition into artificially intelligent agents. Do you have a sense of which of these problems will prove to be more difficult? So understanding, whatever that means, human cognition, or building artificial intelligence? Well, I think that's a great question um, because there's sort of issues on both sides about what it would mean or when we would know that we understood something, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, even as early as Turing thinking about these things, um, you know, how would we know that a machine was intelligent? Well, because it passes certain tests, but, um, and that's, in some ways, that's very much like what we do in psychology, right? We try to infer the competencies of human intelligence by giving by giving people tasks to perform and seeing how they perform them and what stressors and what contingencies you know they respond to and so on but we're always trying to make inferences and uh, at the end of the day of course you end up you've only got a theory um, and data that might be consistent with it uh, and so just like it is in like you know, physics, will we ever know uh, about the origins of the universe or will we just have different theories about that? And will we ever know that we understand the composition of matter or we just have different theories about that? I guess in AI, we'll always have, oh, well, we've succeeded in doing X task. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to understand <laughs> the same way. But when it comes to understanding the mind, it's just like, um, I fear that there's always going to be, you know, a variety of perspectives on this and different people will want to look at it in different ways and consider other people's understandings limiting. And, um, but that'll make it fun and interesting and people will continue to have uh, gainful employment trying to uh, contribute to our uh, current contemporary contextualized sense of understanding. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's kind of a moving goalpost that absolutely we might understand in, in some sense, but then there's always a chance to build other perspectives on it to keep understanding more. Uh, yeah. And then like you mentioned, at least in the AI case, we can at least say it can do this set of tasks because you're kind of building something versus understanding. Even then, though, it gets complicated, right? Because, well, if it, why is it that GPT-3 can do this task? Is it because actually all the particular examples you have in the task are already in the training set, you know? <laughs> and people don't even know the answer to that question because nobody knows what's in that one trillion word training set, you know? So, so it, there's... Uh, it's actually still a question. Is it just memorizing or is it learning something, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so it becomes a little philosophical there too. <laughs> so then these two different perspectives, like human cognition and artificial intelligence, machine learning, going back to all the way when you were getting started. So your PhD was in psychology. Can mm -hmm. you think back to like, what were your initial interests 
um, in getting into research and then deciding to do a PhD? Well, even when I was in high school, I was interested in psychology, you know, things that people would call psychology. I was actually an avid reader of Eric Fromm and Sigmund Freud and things like that. And I, um, you know, I, I was a good science student and a good math student in high school, but, uh, the, you know, the psychological side was all, you know, not part of my curriculum at that point. When I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted. I, I thought I'd be a psychiatrist for a while, but um, my earliest experiences in pre-med classes were, you know, it didn't work out too well. So I, I kind of lost that thread. And, and then um, toward the end of my sophomore year, uh, I was at Columbia College in New York City, and I found myself in the midst of a a revolution of sorts in which, you know, undergraduates at this prestigious Ivy League institution were questioning the authority of the leadership of the university and demanding uh, change and um, acting in ways that I thought were very surprising. They had a, certain people had this like, degree of belief about how things should be that I could just never embrace myself. I, I guess I've always been um, somebody who, you know, could see both sides of an argument or something like that. And, mm. and so I just got really, well, what makes it so that, you know, these people are so convinced and so many others are so unconvinced. Right. Mm. And we had this, insurrection and several buildings got occupied and um i was taking psych one at the time and i didn't you know it's just sort of out of my interest in psychology but i didn't really have a plan to major in psychology or anything but there were two lectures that that i found really uh relevant to my situation one was the lecture about crowd psychology and how people could get swept up in um, something that they would later, you know, completely regret and feel guilty of having participated in. Mm. And um, the other was um, a lecture on personality assessment. Uh, And, you know, we gave each other, we, we took, a personality inventory assessment and just made one think about the kinds of questions you could ask people about how they thought about themselves. And uh, so, you know, I had my, the opportunity to do a little research project right then and there during this insurrection, which was to develop my own personality assessment inventory to uh, help me find out more about what made it so that some people had the strength of convictions to be the kind of person who would occupy mm. a building and shut down the university, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think the moral of the story is that something about human behavior fascinated me, and I could see a way as an undergraduate to actually begin to do research on it. 
where I could get answers to questions that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was so different from other branches of science, right? Physics and chemistry. I would take these classes and I was really fascinated by the principles and the ideas, but the experimental side of high school and early college physics and chemistry was just dreadfully boring. It was just like, find out what's in this test tube, you know? I could not get excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's all done by a recipe. And uh, so, so I just got uh, really uh, swept up in the idea that I could do research for myself. And uh, I then started majoring in psychology. And I was exposed to three kinds of ideas. One was learning theory, you know, of the, the classical sort of Skinnerian associative learning ideas. So not everybody, you know, Skinnerian ideas were uh, essentially the idea was animals learn to behave in response to reward contingencies. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it was a science of behavior. It, it, you know, you would understand why people would do things because they responded to these contingencies. So at some level that fit in with the kinds of like, why are some people occupying these buildings and others not? Well, maybe they're responding to slightly different contingencies, right? That would be another part of the answer to the question. So that was one part of it. The second part of it was psychophysics. Um, so experimental psychology the first half of the 20th century, a lot of it was operant conditioning, Skinnerian work, a lot of it was psychophysics. What is the relationship between the stimulus and the perception? And all of psychophysics was essentially the effort to characterize continuous uh, aspects of experience, such as how loud is the sound or how certain are you that there's a stimulus there, right? Mm -hmm. So I studied signal detection theory as an undergraduate. And mm. this is a theory that says that our experiences are completely continuous and we carve them up by placing criteria and making statements about whether we think a signal was present or not based on an adjustable criterion that we can move around. Mm -hmm. And and then the third thing that influenced me at that point was um, a course that I took on sensory neurophysiology. So it was about how neurons can propagate signals um, that give rise to sensations and perceptions, and. Mm -hmm. So I learned about what neurons were and how they were connected up in circuits and how those circuits could produce um, perceptual phenomena. So um, one of the perceptual phenomena was um, context sensitivity of brightness perception. Okay, so we, I think we've, all had this experience, but um, if if you present a patch uh, on a screen at a certain 
you know, luminance, the perceived brightness of that patch depends on the context that it's in. If it's surrounded by black, it may seem a brilliant white. If it's surrounded by white, though, it suddenly looks very dark, right? Uh, a mid-gray can seem very white or very dark, depending on the surrounding. And this is a phenomenon that you can observe in your own experience. You could do the experiment yourself and make sure that they didn't play games with how bright the light was, right, and that sort of thing. But then you can understand it from the point of view of very simple aspects of neural circuits. Mm -hmm. So the, the simplest way of thinking about this one is that neurons are driven bottom-up by light, and they also inhibit each other. They inhibit their neighbors so that when the gray is surrounded by bright white, it inhibits all the neurons responding to the to that gray and makes it seem darker. And when they're surrounded by nothing, it doesn't inhibit them. And so it seems brighter. Mm -hmm. So so I finished graduate school with um, learning, continuous perception, and an understanding of sensory mechanisms. Okay? Mm -hmm. That was my undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. And so I go, I go to graduate school, and all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of um, this wave of excitement about cognitive psychology, a brand new discipline in the, you know, the, it began to emerge in the 60s, but the book, you know, introducing the field was published in 1967 by Ulrich Neisser, and uh, I went to graduate school starting in 1970. Um, and everybody was just really excited about, about the idea that we could start to understand human cognition. And uh, everybody at that time was really excited about understanding human cognition in terms of um, using computers to simulate human cognitive processes. Mm -hmm. But the computer programs they used, you know, um, didn't learn. Mm -hmm. And they uh, engaged in a series of discrete stepwise operations. Um, and the representations they worked on were discrete, like this is an X, not a Y. This, you know, this proposition is true. This one, you know, so truth values, right, rather than continuous degrees of certainty and uncertainty or intensity of perception or something like that. And so there was this, there was this immediate sort of like tension between, wow, these, this phenomena of human cognition are really interesting and exciting, and I really want to understand them better. But the way people were modeling them was very foreign to my prior experience, which was with learning-based, continuous, and um, you know, neuromechanistic ways of thinking about uh, about explanation. And so when I was in graduate school, I, there was this constant tension between these two kinds of ideas, uh, I felt. And I, I just sort of, that was what interested me. I wanted to move towards somehow bridging the gap between models of human cognition on the one hand and what I knew about continuous 
learning-based and mechanistic ways of thinking about about representation and processing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So looking all the way back, um, something about the kind of neural circuitry, these continuous aspects really resonated with you, even though much of the field, maybe when you were entering, was taking a different approach that was more kind of discrete, logic-based, rule-based. Yeah, you know, um, what we now call good old-fashioned AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, it wasn't completely old-fashioned in 1970, but by then, actually, some people were beginning to get frustrated with it, right, because it actually hadn't solved all the problems that, oh, now that we can program a computer, intelligence should be trivial, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then, so, you start with this, um, you said, like, one thing that interested you about psychology was that you kind of could tie it to things that were happening around you. So why were people, uh, you know, doing these different protests? But then like in your in your PhD work, you focus on this problem of preliminary letter identification. So how did you kind of start to narrow in on this particular problem where you're looking at when we perceive a word, do we first identify recognize and perceive the constituent letters. So it's like a very kind of specific problem. How did you get interested in this problem? Um, on the one hand, it seems um, blindingly obvious that when we read, we recognize the letters and then we recognize the words, right? I mean, this is, this seems like this, you know, you ask a layman, well, how do you recognize words? And you say, well, because they're made up of letters and I know what the letters are, right? You, um, however, there was this phenomenon called the word superiority effect. And the word superiority effect was the finding that you see a letter better when it's in a word than when it's by itself. Mm. And if you, um, thought that you first identified the letters before you could figure out what the word was, then, you know, that would seem paradoxical, right? Because you'd have to see the letters before you knew what the word was. And so you already knew what the letters were. So why did you need that? How could the word help you see the letters, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, Indeed, there were models of reading, which, you know, we would call discrete stage models um, in which there was sort of a, you know, the idea that there was a sensory register and then there was something that would sequentially scan through the, the, the positions in this sensory register and identify the letters and put them in a buffer. And then that would get that list of identified letters would get sent to a, a, a next process that would then search to see if there was a word in the lexicon that matched that sequence of letters mm. by doing a serial comparison where the order of the comparison was ranked by the frequencies of the words in the language. So the idea was you compare the stimulus to the highest frequency words first, and so if you got a match on a high-frequency word, you'd be fast, right? So this accounted for the advantage of frequent words over infrequent words in how long it took people to 
identify a word, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very sequential, serial computer-based idea. And the word superiority effect was completely inconsistent with that. Um, so I, I studied that phenomenon because people had, in collaboration with another guy who actually um, was very influential in my experience in cognitive psychology in graduate school, his name was Jim Johnston, and we our first two papers are co-authored, and he's the first author in both of them. Um, this word superiority effect, somebody had reported it in the late 60s, but then, and, and there was this, a follow-up study, but the guy who'd done the follow-up couldn't replicate his own work. And so there was this like, oh, well, is this a real effect or not? So we, the first thing we did was we found that it really mattered exactly what the visual conditions were under which you presented the letter by itself versus the letter in a word. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a, you know, so we nailed down the fact that this really was a real effect and it occurred under certain circumstances. And, um, and then I started asking this question, well, how could this occur? Or how could knowledge about the word help you figure out what the letters were if you had to get to the word via the letters. Mm. So the first idea that you could have is, oh, maybe you recognize the word by its outline shape and you don't have to go through the letters. Maybe the shape of the word is a redundant cue that tells you what the word is. So in fact, the word shape is a good example of that, right? If you visualize it, it starts with a lowercase letter, and then it's got this A sender with the H, and then A, and then the P has a D sender, mm-hmm. and then the E. So it has a fairly distinctive shape. And if you just give somebody a sequence of letters that has that overall shape, and you show it to them in their peripheral vision, and you proceed it with a context like, he looked through the fog and saw, he discerned a unfamiliar, I don't know, I'm making this one up, but Mm -hmm. this would be a cue that maybe it's the word shape and this this outline shape together with this context might be enough for you to say, oh, that must be the word shape, right? Mm -hmm. And so people were arguing, okay, maybe the word superiority effect is due to the fact that we recognize the shape of the word and that gives us extra cues to what the letters are. I see. But I thought that was probably not the whole answer because it seemed to me that um, words were essentially these abstract things that were beyond the letters, you know, Mm -hmm. they're composed of the sequence of abstract letter identities, not, you know, physical shapes. And so um, the experiment that I did was to show that the word superiority effect still occurred when I presented people with words consisting of mixed upper and lowercase letters. Uh And they definitely disrupted the overall outline shape that you would have from the lowercase letters in a word. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, 
and they also didn't they didn't match any existing shape that you'd previously seen before, right? You're seeing a, a lowercase r followed by an uppercase e followed by a lowercase a followed by an uppercase d. Mm -hmm. That's the word read. You've never seen that before, right? right, right. That's not a familiar shape as such. And yet, the word superiority effect still occurs with those stimuli. Right, yeah. And, and so this, this um, uh, was the main finding of my dissertation research, really, that um, we still uh, observe this word superiority effect even when we've disrupted the shape uh, that you will have ever seen before for a particular word and um, presented it in, in mixed upper and lowercase type like this. So then I'm left with the question, well, how could it be that the word can help you determine what the letters are? And this is where I get back to these ideas about continuous, uh, um, you know, gradual buildup of information mm -hmm. that um, I mentioned earlier on, right? So the idea, you know, completely in my intuition and informal sort of thinking about this at this point, I didn't know anything about how to build a computational model of any kind when I was thinking about these things at first. I'm like thinking, okay, well, if, you know, coming from the input, the input's a little ambiguous, so I don't know exactly what letter it is in each position, but the visual input is sort of partially activating um, a set of possible candidate letters in every position of a word. You could still have a situation where you weren't sure about any of the individual letters, but there was only one word that was consistent with all the possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. So this is... And then if that can happen early enough, then at the word level, these partial activations of letters can activate the word that fits best, better than they activate any other word. And so the, the answer I gave in my thesis was that, um, you can determine what the whole word was if it's a word and you know that word because you've got a unit for it somehow in your mind already. Uh, even if you don't have unambiguous information about the letters and then when it's presented very, very briefly so that you don't have time to settle on what the letters are, but you could read out the word level because that's sort of distinct from all the other possible words. Mm -hmm. then you could then decode the word and tell yourself what letters must have been that were in it. And that was how I um, explained the word superiority effect um, in my PhD work. Yeah, yeah. So partial information is propagated forward, and then you you read the answer off the top layer, and then you can use that to then infer the... Uh, the parts that must have been in. Yeah, so this this key experiment about the mixed case, which was kind of decoupling the whether the word superiority 
superiority effect was tied to the visual form versus the kind of arrangement of letters. And then it seems like, so in one of your talks, Jeff Hinton did the introduction and he mentioned that, you know, among many other things, uh, one thing that was, that you were really strong at was grounding theories in data. And this sounds like, like one of those fundamentals that's easy to overlook, but I was thinking about this thesis and like in retrospect, do you think that this was kind of a data collection phase? that you were getting really familiar with this problem. You were doing these very like careful experiments, which yielded a bit of data about this problem. And then kind of the next step was thinking about, okay, how do we start to introduce a model which is consistent with all this data that I'm familiar with now? Um, yes, with a slight proviso that it was a little bit more kind of overlapping than that, right? I mean, I was, like it was partially motivated by my theoretical, pre-theoretical intuitions, if you like, which then turn into a theory. So that makes sense. Um, I in in 1974, I completed my dissertation research. I actually did those experiments, the, the first one in the summer of 74, and then for some reason, they already offered me a job before I finished my PhD, but that doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. But I, I, I went to UCSD and did the second experiment in my thesis in the fall of 74. And, um, you know, I wrote it up over Christmas, basically. I guess I, guess I got it in just before Christmas because I wanted to say I'd finished my PhD in 74, but my committee didn't get around to approving it till after Christmas. So <laughs> I didn't graduate till 75, but I was already on the faculty at UCSD at that time. And I began to think about like writing down my little theory about this with the, with the continuous sort of partial information feeding forward to the next level. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then I, I was, I had this amazing opportunity that one of the, more senior professors sort of like pointed me to, which was to go and spend two weeks at a conference in June of 75, where I was first exposed to an actual neural network model of something. Hmm. And um, so I went to this conference in June of 75 and the I ended up staying in the same motel with a man named Jim Anderson, and he was one of the speakers in the conference. And, you know, he talked about his um, neural network models of um, aspects of perception and memory. And I just like, wow, this is what I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking for, a way of um, constraining my ideas, you know, computationally. Mm -hmm. But before that, before that, I think I had actually tried to write up my ideas about this without having any like equations or simulations at all, just a sort of a verbal description of sort of some principles that I kind of believed in. Mm -hmm. I did submit that paper to Psych Review 
and the editors um, said, this sounds interesting, but we can't really understand the implications of these ideas until you have a model, you know? Mm. And, and so my exposure to Jim Anderson sort of gave me this sort of like, oh, okay, there is a model there. I could extend that model and simulate and, and show them that I could actually produce a simulation of this phenomenon. So mm. that's when I started to realize that um, in order to um, make my ideas sufficiently explicit, I would have to develop um, either formal or, you know, formally mathematical or computer simulation based models. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you had this really influential model, the interactive activation model. And this was a model for explaining the word superiority effect. So was this kind of the next, was this connected then to these interests that you had developed during the PhD? Would you say this was kind of the next step on, on the path? Yeah, it was. So I want to first of all say that that particular piece of work was something that, you know, I ended up being the first author on it, but that was a bit of an accident in a certain kind of way. Now, uh, Rummelhart was, uh, had motivations of his own, a little bit distinct from mine, but certainly synergistic with mine. And um, uh, what, what happened was that uh, he had written a paper that I read in the summer of 1976 called An Interactive Model of Reading. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, you, you were referring to my experimental background as sort of a, a grounding for me at some level. It, it was sufficient grounding for me. I, I, I became like, you know, somebody who was considered an expert, at least by the editor of one journal. So anybody submitted an article to that journal about perception of letters and words, you know, I was going to be a reviewer of this article. And he really liked my reviews. And so, and, and at one point he invited me to write a review article myself for his journal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, I, I understand all this literature I have these ideas about what the computations are like, but I need to make them, you know, more explicit so as to get my head around all the literature properly and to sort of like articulate for other people that this is doable. So I started drawing, I was drawing on Rommel Hart's interactive model of reading as I thought about this. And, um, you know, he was, this colleague who I hadn't really worked with that much up to that time, but we just went and had coffee together one day and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, Oh, I'm building this model that looks like this. And he said, that's funny. I'm doing the same thing, you know? So, so we essentially, we just joined forces and um, did this project together. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
just to link it back to those ideas that I was mentioning earlier, the model had neuron-like processing units in it that corresponded to visual features or letters or whole words. And it used this concept of lateral inhibition that I mentioned before in talking about the brightness contrast effect mm. earlier on in the conversation as a way of essentially allowing the letter that was the best match to the features to kind of like get more activated than any of the others and then inhibit the other ones so that it would kind of like dominate the pattern of activation in, in its position. So that, you know, you could imagine uh, four banks of feature units and four banks of letter units. And within each bank of letter units, if you present the features that match one letter perfectly, that letter will get very strongly activated. Others that partially match it will get a little activated. And then the lateral inhibition will allow the word, the letter that matches the best to kind of dominate, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the cool things about this is you don't need an exact match to get a best match uh, computation out of it. You, so, you know, you present some features, but maybe there's one missing, but um, if it's still closer to one letter than it is to any other letter, that'll still be the the letter that's most favored by the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the feature and the letter level. Um, and then the word level sits up on top of that. And so if you already thought that it might be the word, let's say, work, and you weren't sure whether the last letter was an R or a K because some of the features were hidden and, you know, it was the bottom of uh, capital R or capital K, which are the same. It's just the top right-hand portion of them. They're different, right? So mm -hmm. if you couldn't see that bit, well, the bottom up would say, well, it's either an R or a K and they'd be competing with each other. And the word level would tell you, well, we think this is the word work. So that top down signal supports the K and the K then suppresses the R through the lateral inhibition mechanism. Uh -huh. And uh, and then the only the remaining step is that gee all that partial activation of possibilities in all positions would allow work to get activated even if you weren't certain about the letter in any of those positions, but it would start to get active while the activations are building up at the letter level and then feedback activation back down to the letter level. And essentially, we were then able to account for the word superiority thing. But we were using this continuous um, process mediated by the letter level between the features and the words, right? So this preliminary letter identification is in the model. Mm -hmm. and um, But it's partial. It's not, you know, you haven't determined exactly which letter it is before you start to pass the information up to the word level and then uh, and then the feedback comes back down and supports the perception supports the answer to the question which which letter is it in each of these different positions mm -hmm. um, and so that's the interactive activation model and it does perfectly integrate you know this experimental background I had in studying this problem and um, 
these different sources of ideas I had from when I was an undergraduate about, you know, the continuous nature of things and the, the kind of neuromechanistic ideas about, about where they came from. The one part that it didn't have was learning. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That's really cool to, to hear about like that path of ideas. And yeah, I went back and took a look at the original paper and it is kind of cool to look at it nowadays because it has all these like very key ideas like the hierarchy you were mentioning where you have the letter features, the level above that, and then the word features. Yeah. It has this kind of, uh, I think you use the term neurons as currency. So you have like the simple, the idea of a simple neuron is like the unit in this model. Yeah, I think that the, the phrase was, uh, I think it was activation is the only currency. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so this was actually one of Rommel Hart's key points about it. He, you know, he had done a fair amount of work in a good old-fashioned AI kind of context. And there was all these ideas that um, some sort of... Uh, messages would have to get passed around between component elements of a computation. And these messages are extremely complex. And, you know, what would be a useful message for one thing to send would be a very complex message for the receiver to interpret, you know, and, and it just cut a big Gordian knot for him to just be able to say, gee, the only thing that's happening here is we're propagating activation among these simple neuron-like processing units, and they're going to settle into this state where, you know, the, the, the there's this pattern where uh, the most the word that's most consistent with all the features and the letters that are consistent with that word, you know, they're all sort of simultaneously activated in this mutual bidirectional activation process. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that was extremely satisfying in many ways, um, and uh, and it, it resonated with a lot of other people too. So uh, that papers, the paper uh, led to other people building models of all kinds of other aspects of perception and aspects of memory and other things like that. Um, yeah, which is very pleasing. Yeah. The so the last sentence of the abstract. Uh, it says the model thus accounts for apparently rule-governed performance without any actual rules. And I felt like that sentence was kind of speaking to a larger maybe situation that was going on. Like, was there kind of, like you mentioned, still this view about rule-based type things versus these more like neural-inspired continuous models that you were developing? And then this this interactive activation model, was this kind of a controversial model or had people kind of moved away from this other view? Well, it, this is a really interesting question. It, it was controversial, but it wasn't controversial about that issue. It but the next bit of work that we did that was about, that took that issue up again, that's where, uh, <laughs> Uh, the shit hit the fan, if I can use that <laughs> expression. <laughs> so, so can I just unpack that yeah, uh, yeah. here a little bit? Um, so, in the interactive activation model, if you present 
a word, then the best matching thing is that word, if you know that word. But if you present something like, let's say, um, M-A-V-E, which isn't a word, so there is no unit for that word. Mm -hmm. um, another experiment that I had done in my thesis, and I'm very proud of this one too. It, it wasn't my thesis, actually. My thesis was a very short document about the letter, the preliminary letter identification, but the, this was another study that I had done um, during my time as a graduate student. We showed that the word superiority effect also occurs with items like MAVE. Um, so you see the A in M-A-V-E mm -hmm. just as well as you see the letter A in CAVE, for example, or almost as well, right. and much better than you see it if it occurs by itself. So how could that be, right? Well, there's no unit for the word MAVE, well, at least it wasn't in our model because that wasn't a word in the lexicon. But the way the model explains this is um, M-A blank E is a pattern that exists in like six or eight words. And blank A-V-E is a pattern that exists in another six or eight words. And M blank VE is a pattern that exists in the word move, at least. Um, and so, you know, this item, M A V E, partially activates like 15 or so words. And they're all partially activated and they're all sending feedback. And many of them have M's at the beginning and many of them have V's, but almost all of them have A's in that second position. So that all those words are saying, oh, you know, the the best thing to put here in this context is an A. Mm -hmm. you know? or that really fits in this context. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so that was the, the fact that the model without any additional apparatus automatically accounts for the advantage of these non-word-like stimuli over... Um, single letters or random strings of letters um, was the thing that led to that sentence that you read. Mm -hmm. the, thus, the model explains rule-like behavior without any rules. Uh, previously, people had said, oh, there must be rules about what patterns make legitimate letter strings. And, you know, mm -hmm. these rules are influencing our perceptions on that. So we got, we didn't have to invoke any rules. We just had, um, you know, partial activation of all the words that were partially consistent with the input. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people were intrigued by that in this particular literature because they weren't dogmatically focused on linguistic on linguistic issues like as, as linguists might be. Um, you know, and reading was not considered of interest to linguists because you know, phonology is the real thing and spelling is, you know, something, you know, it isn't real. It, it's so, the real thing for languages is sounds. And so they didn't get excited about this. But um, a few years later, we, um, you know, sort of extended the conversation, if you like, into the space of models, uh, of, of the question of like, how is it that a child could um, 
say the word, say, um, taked instead of took mm -hmm. or goad instead of went. And, and this is something that people had observed children doing. They actually make those errors. And, and when those errors were first observed, they were considered to be, um, you know, a demonstration that the child had extracted the past tense rule, the rule that says that you make the past tense of a word by adding ed to the end of it. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, what, what we did was to say, well, um, could we account for that same tendency, you know, using a neural network? And by then we had started to think about learning. Um, uh, we had borrowed ideas from other people, uh, such as Rosenblatt's Perceptron. And um, we made this very simple model that we presented on the input, we presented patterns that represented the spelling, the, the um, phonology of the sort of the base form of a word like um, like, uh, let's say, take or bake or something like that. And the target on the output was the, the phonology of its past tense. Mm -hmm. So in the case of take, the past tense is took. That's an exception. Um, but in the case of bake, the past tense is baked. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, if you train, if you look at the top 10 words in the English language, eight of them are exceptions. So if you only knew those top 10 words, you wouldn't really know about the regularity, right? Because it's like take, took, go, went, um, come, came, words like that, right? But if you learn a bunch more words, by the time you get to like um, 400 words, more than 300 of them are regular words where you add ed. And what we showed was that we could train this simple model to map from input patterns representing the phonology of the base form of a word to patterns representing the phonology of the past tense form if we just trained it with those really high frequency words, it would memorize them. But if we trained it with all 400 of the most frequent words in the language, it would first learn about the regular pattern, and then it would only gradually sort of figure out how to deal with the exceptions along with those, uh, with the regular pattern. Mm -hmm. And so we said, oh, look, you know, here's a very simple neural network model. It's just adjusting the strengths of the connections item by item to make it so that its output matches what the environment tells it the output should be. There's nothing but a bunch of connections in there. There's no rules, and yet it exhibits this rule-like behavior, this tendency to say take instead of took, or goad instead of went. And um, that's when... Uh, uh, <laughs> when the revolution really started, yeah, yeah, I would say. So then, um, so then after that, 
Yeah, so I want to go to to PDP, Parallel Distributed Processing. And so from what I understand, the interactive activation model is kind of part of this larger, maybe like philosophy almost, or project of Parallel Distributed Processing. So yeah, kind of how did how did that take shape? And it, it ended up in these two different books, two volumes of Parallel Distributed Processing. Did you kind of start seeing, I don't know, more general, larger phenomena going on and this word recognition was a single instance of it? Or was it kind of summarizing a collection of ideas? Yeah. So I mentioned uh, Jim Anderson, the, the man I had spent those two weeks with at that conference I mentioned in, in 1975. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another man named Jeff Hinton, who is, of course, extremely famous now. Uh, and uh, Jeff applied for a postdoc. He received his PhD in, I believe it was like 77 in artificial intelligence from the University of Sussex, maybe 76. But in any case, he, I think he joined us at UCSD in 77 or 78. And he um, brought, he and Jim Anderson both brought this commitment to uh, distributed representation into our way of thinking. And so they, they actually organized a conference that was held, I believe it was held in uh, 80 or 81. Um, they published a, a, a volume from the conference proceedings. Uh, and uh, it, it really focused on the concept of distributed representation. Okay, so at that point, basically the notion of a distributed representation was simply that instead of having a unit for a cognizable item, like a letter or a word, mm-hmm. you would say, no, I'm not going to stipulate a unit for these cognizable items, these things that we talk to each other about. Oh, this word is made of these four letters. Whatever. We're just going to imagine that the brain um, uses patterns of activity over populations of neurons as its way of representing something. And uh, of course, this idea of a vector representing something like a word, uh, the, the semantic and syntactic implications of a word is now like at the heart of all, you know, these um, deep learning based uh, language modeling, right? There's these Im- the vectors called embeddings, which are distributed representations. There's pat- there are patterns of activation, mm-hmm. which are which are essentially assigned as a result of a learning process, you know, to be the representation of an item so as to allow it to function effectively in the context of other items and result in the, you know, the right kinds of implications being discovered. And uh, Anderson and Hinton were already using this idea of distributed representations um, in their work in the 70s and when they, you know, uh, and then they invited a bunch of other people 
to this conference who were also using those ideas. So that that conference really focused on models that used distributed representations as opposed to, you know, what we call localist or one-hot representations now. So the interactive activation model was all the localist thing. Mm. Um, but in another sense, the interactive activation model was also parallel and distributed processing, right? The, the idea is that the overall computation that results in the perception of what word it is, what letters are there, and even if you allow top-down from the letters to the features, what features you know might not have been clearly discernible but can be inferred from the context, mm -hmm. that, that is a parallel distributed computation. The neuron-like units at all positions and all layers are simultaneously updating their states and and sending signals to each other and simultaneously updating each other's states in this distributed interactive process. And uh, so that's already parallel distributed processing. And certainly, you know, when it came to that item MAVE, you know, all the different words that were partially activated were all contributing there as well. So the computation is really distributed throughout the entire network. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the point of saying, well, we're not even going to have units for these cognizable items at all. We're just going to have right. distributed representations. That suddenly it becomes more challenging to think about it because <laughs> what the hell are those goddamn things anyway? You know, it's just patterns of activation. And do, you know, could we really point to a locus in the brain and say, that's, that's where the letters are and that's where the words are and so on. Mm -hmm. So there was some controversy there also, you know, people were like, many people were more comfortable with the interactive activation model, and they really didn't want to give up on this localist commitment to mm -hmm. item-specific units. Um, so parallel distributed processing, you know, for, for me, the three principles of PDP are um, graded mutual constraint satisfaction, like the letters and the words and the features are all, have graded activations, they're all mutually constraining each other. And this is all happening. Each of these little um, units is sort of like working simultaneously with all the other units, just whatever inputs it's getting, it's updating its state. And it's doing this uh, and it's sending this information out to others through its connections. Um, and that's very much parallel processing. All these units are doing their thing in parallel and it's distributed. All the computation is the, the overall computation is distributed across all these elements in a, in a massive mutual constraint satisfaction process. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's parallel distributed processing, but distributed also picks up on distributed representation as well. So, you know, one of the early chapters in the book is about the idea of letting go of localist representations mm -hmm. and, and utilizing distributed representations. And that chapter was essentially written by Jeff Minton and um, laid out uh, some very, uh, some very influential ideas that had a lot of influence on my own thinking um, after he arrived at UCSD. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, he arrived around the end of the 70s and, and 
um, we we got started, you know, really doing the the PDP part of it, which was where we incorporated the distributed representations along with the uh, mutual constraint satisfaction ideas that we were just going over. Um, and then the third element, which is so central to the entire enterprise, is the idea that um, the connections aren't hardwired in advance by the scientist or the engineer. Mm -hmm. They're something that arises as a consequence of an experience-dependent synaptic or connection adjustment process. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not present in the title of the book as such when you say power distributed processing. It's not in there, but it, it, it was the third uh, very central element of the work. And it was what, um, you know, I think really ends up being the heart of deep learning, right? I mean, we've got the learning part going on now. And it's really um, extremely powerful, uh, and it's working um, in ways that um, you know are beginning to meet some of our expectations for what we might have hoped uh, when we wrote those books in the in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the distributed versus localist maybe like debate or difference is still around? today uh like as a debate or is like most of the debate when people talk about you know like neurosymbolic or more symbolic approaches is that more on this third point that you were talking about that the connections aren't something that we build in or bake in ourselves yeah, sort of yes and no i i think um first of all when I when I think of like neurosymbolic approaches, like um, Tenenbaum uses that phrase, um, mm -hmm. there's there's still this sort of sense that there's a hypothesis space that involves discreetly innumerable hypotheses about something. Uh, and, you know, so like in the interactive activation model, you can say, well, you know, my hypothesis is that it's the word work and that the letters in it are W, O, R, and K. Mm -hmm. And therefore that the features of those letters are this line segment here and that line segment there and, and so on. And that, um, those elements, the word work as a, distinct alternative among an ensemble or the letter K as one of 26 alternatives, you know, the idea that there are those 26 alternatives and that the computation is a matter of deciding among them mm -hmm. is, is a kind of a commitment to a symbolic code. Right. And it's interesting that, um, you know, in, in, in like classification, deep learning based classification systems, right? Your, your input is a bitmap, but your output is a classification. And that output 
is still this one of some number of alternatives. I mean, even if there's, mm. you know, I don't know, 324 different kinds of dogs in there, each of which is a distinct species of dog, it's still deciding which one of those it is, right? Right, right. And, um, uh, but the thing is that that, of course, in that convolutional neural network, that commitment only exists at the outside, at the output level. It doesn't exist anywhere else inside the model. Mm -hmm. And the argument that, you know, people like me uh, give is that it's because you haven't forced yourself to make decisions about what those intermediate level units are going to be that you can actually exploit the, 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 the complex naturalistic constraints that actually exist in the data to allow you to capture, you know, the subtle differences between one kind of dog or another. So if you had to decide, is this, is this dog's, is, is this dog a hairy dog or a furry dog, mm -hmm. right? You know, you, that discrete decision would, throw the whole thing off right and and if you look at language models it's the same way right on the input side there's a tokenization they say okay it's this sequence of letters on the input and this sequence of letters on the output but nowhere in between this huge neural network with massive numbers of layers and vectors of various sizes and so on nowhere in between do you force it to make a discrete decision about what which of n different alternative choices of a particular set of types is this you know mm -hmm. um and and i i think that this is a huge reason why um deep learning approaches have been able to go beyond anything that people could program up based on trying to write down what they thought the primitives actually were or the correct taxonomy of intermediate level concepts actually were. Mm -hmm. And and so it um, in a sense, that's the residue of this localist distributed debate. It's this idea that you would commit to a you know, a discrete innumerable set of alternative types. So, so, so this was the, this was the, the Chomskyan revolution was a big revolution because it, it opened up the idea that we could understand our ability to understand an infinite number of sentences, which are composed of, of you know, out of a finite list of elements, but the, the way they got to infinity was by allowing the length to be indefinite, right? You could have multiple center embeddings or indefinite number of adjectives or something like that. And uh, so, so we get novel sentences out of it for that reason. In, with, with parallel distributed processing or deep neural networks, you get infinite variety even without going all the way to infinite length because, you know, there's a continuous space in between all the alternatives. Mm -hmm. right? And, and so, um, 
it's a it's a different way of getting uh, um, a, a model that captures the um, extensibility of intelligence. And I, I don't mean to belittle the interesting debates that are going on about mm -hmm. you know whether there's enough systematicity in neural networks or too much or or. But I tend to be on the side of those who thinks that well, okay, people do exhibit some degree of systematicity, but if you build it in, it's going to interfere with your ability to pick up on all the subtleties that really um, characterize the, you know, the fluidity and um, context sensitivity and flexibility of human intelligence. And to some extent, the systematicity itself might be learned rather than something that was pre-specified, potentially. So I, yes. And th so there's two levels of that. Um, the first level of it is, um, I, let me say this about systematicity. The world that human beings live in is a world that contains lots and lots of distinct objects. That is to say, things that are separate from each other you know, like I'm looking at my desk in front of me and there's my glasses, my cell phone and um, some nail clippers sitting here and I can pick up the nail clippers. The glasses and the cell phone are still just sitting there, right? Mm -hmm. So this is an independent element of this scene that I can separately manipulate. Mm -hmm. And um, so the world is composed of these distinct objects in this way. And um, that that is the, you know, when we utter propositions in language, we're, we're often telling each other about, you know, particular comp juxtapositions of objects or the way in which one object has influenced another. Like, you know, somebody ate a banana. <laughs> uh, so, that person ate a banana and the banana is no longer there because got consumed. And, uh, uh, but otherwise the world is relatively unaffected. So that sentence is communicating something about that very specific event that occurred that had a, a consequence for the consumer and a consequence for the thing consumed, but relatively little other consequences. Um, and, and sort of language you know, comes to have like words for classes of objects because, well, the world consists of objects and they come in classes and, you know, that are largely quite similar to each other. So bananas on the whole are like other bananas, right? Uh, and so it's extremely powerful to have a system like language that picks out those clusters of things that are highly similar to each other and treats them as though they were the same and, and um, allows us to communicate efficiently about, about relationships between them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, this observation could lead somebody to say, yeah, an evolution might well have picked up on that and specialized us to do that. And I think, you know, I don't want to totally um, diss that idea. But what I would say is that in fact, though, when you look real closely, there's always these idiosyncrasies that defeat any attempt to 
legislate exactly what classes we ought to think there are. And mm -hmm. um, so what I think is that we want a, a, a system that's like quasi-symbolic, right? Mm -hmm. That that captures all of that stuff that the environment um, sort of encourages us to capture, but also allows room for those nuances that are still there. Mm -hmm. And um, so doesn't force us to over over um discretize yeah, yeah. the world and and so it but it's it's a the pressure towards the quasi discretization is really strong and really important and has to be acknowledged mm -hmm. but but then the the second level of the of it is that when it comes to formal reasoning which is something that allows for exact, you know, for the deduction of conclusions from given premises. Um, that's, in, in my view, that is what's foreign to native human intelligence. That's what we owe to philosophers, logicians, and mathematicians not to um, evolution <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah so then i want to ask about a recent area of research that you've been looking into which is about mathematical cognition so first is mathematics is mathematical cognition kind of an interesting setting in which to study some of these ideas we've been talking about related to parallel distributed processing or just in general, how did you get interested in starting this research direction? Well, I thought it was intriguing because it sort of brings back some of that, you know, really early tension that I was talking about between the symbolic and the continuous or, um, you know, neural, neurally grounded sort of perspective. And, um, I guess the reason why I got interested in it, though, was because I felt that math mathematical understanding and insight, at least in what we know about human uh, mathematics, I think, or at least what many people believe about it, is that it it isn't entirely well captured by a completely formal um, perspective. Mm. And um, there's this quotation from uh, Henri Poincaré, which I sort of ran into on a park bench while I was hiking in the um, around Mount Shasta uh, last late last summer with my wife, just on a little vacation. Um, which says, "It is by logic that we prove, but by intuition that we discover." And for me, this sort of encapsulated the intrigue of trying to apply neural network models to understanding mathematical cognition, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, there are ways of thinking about mathematics where it is a matter of manipulating symbols according to structure-sensitive rules. And... Gary Marcus has this book, The Algebraic Mind, which sort of, you know, 
touches on that way of thinking, right? The notion is that, oh, if we only had these rules that applied to things by virtue of their membership in particular classes, that would allow us to capture systematic thought. And I believe that that's what Fodor and Pulitzian were basically talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, the idea is that if you know that X and Y are real numbers, then you can um, then you can apply the principle of commutivity, which says that X plus Y equals Y plus X, and the principle of distributivity and so on to derive all kinds of new expressions from other expressions uh, that involve symbols that are instances of these types. And um, mm -hmm. extremely powerful system that was developed for... Um, by mathematicians and you know refined etc and um but but what Poincaré's quote captures is that you know something that others have said things like oh you know mathematicians they they sort of when they have a new insight they they kind of like have this intuitive understanding of it and then it takes them five years to figure out how to write the proof that it shows that it's it rigorously demonstrates that it's true or they may even some somebody was just telling me this the other day gauss may have even deliberately written proofs that obscured his intuitive insight so as to prevent other people from you know building on his ideas <laughs> because he wanted them to know that it was true, and so he would produce the proof, but he didn't want them to be able to figure out how to, you know, think productively beyond that so he could leave that for himself to work on later. And, um, you know, I don't know whether that's really true about Gauss or not, but but that's the basic intuition I have is somehow, you know, all of this parallel distributed um, interactive activation-based sort of processing sort of can sometimes lead us to have intuitions about what must be true or what might be true. And then, and then um, it causes us to then engage with uh, these formal systems that people have created that then give us these um, tools that sort of leverage our intuitions and allow us to extend so far beyond what we could have created without, without them. And, and, you know, I think of um, mathematics and sort of first arithmetic and then um, mathematics uh, as being, you know, human invented systems for deriving conclusions from given information like what is the sum of these numbers, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, without a well-structured algorithm, you don't get an exact answer to that question, but you can get an exact answer to that question if you have two uh, given numbers. Uh, you know, you can derive their, if they're integers, then get an exact sum. And we, you know, so, so, and, the ability to like 
send a spaceship way out into the fringes of the of the um, solar system and have it intersect with some tiny little asteroid-like body out there where it could take pictures and discover that it's actually a duplex shape. You know, it's like one kilometer long or something out there in this vast reaches of space. I mean, that's just an amazing um, consequence of precision quantitative analysis together with, you know, exact understanding of a bunch of of complicated trigonometric relationships in multidimensional space, right? I mean, it's just it's just amazing to imagine that people have the power to do that kind of stuff. No human being has that power. They only have that power in conjunction with the computer that has been programmed by the human being, building on the insights of other people who, you know, created these ideas and then created these tools and so on. And and so I think what happens is that, you know, what happened to people like Fodor was that they recognized the power of these inferential tools, and then they decided that they had to imagine that they had to reify them as part of the architecture, as opposed to imagining that, you know, they could have been things that uh, people can gain control over, but that, you know, are, are essentially being created by others and passed on to us. And, each of us gets to, some of us get to make some incremental contributions to how to understand these things and pass them on to them. That's not to say that, that um, the human side of it is ultimately uh, the only way of solving the problem. Maybe deep neural networks will eventually also, you know, uh, be able to have the intuition part of it, but it, it, it just, I got interested in it because I wanted to see uh, how I, how I could reconcile this uh, incredible power of, of structured symbolic computation, quantitative structured, you know, it's symbolic and quantitative at the same time and, uh, um, and neural networks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's two uh, questions that I always end the thesis review with. The first is, if you could look back and think about whether you had some kind of objective function, which was guiding your decisions all the way back, you know, during your PhD, was it about kind of scientific exploration? Was it maybe about at the time, you know, career prospects? Um, and then if you think about today, would you say your objective function has changed or stayed the same? I do believe that for the most part, when I was like an undergraduate and then a, a PhD student, I was just following up on the things that I thought were most interesting and um, or that I could see a way of getting an answer to a question that I didn't know the answer to and wanted to know the answer to. And so, and, and, you know, for me, modeling was like that too. I'd like, what are the implications of these ideas? Uh, you can't tell without having a formalism or a computational model that allows you to instantiate them and see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and um, 
of course, there was a moment when I'm like, oh, I need to worry about getting tenure, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But but I I really think, you know, ultimately that it was the fact that I decided that I really had to pursue the idea that I thought was the most important one that led me to the point where I was tenurable because I had done something that people thought was a contribution, right? As opposed to just another experiment. Uh, and um, so, uh, so I, you know, I guess I would say the best objective function for a young scientist is to um, try to answer the scientific question that interests you the most. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there have been times when I've also wanted to like figure out how to convince other people to see why the way I think about things is better than the way they've been thinking about them before. And I, I think when I put it to myself that way, um, uh, it's, it's more positive and constructive sounding than you know, than it is when I put it in terms of like winning an argument against the guy who insists that this is the wrong approach, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but back in the days of, you know, the, the past tense debate that we talked about, um, the, that little model we introduced launched a, at least a style of critique um, that, you know, made it seem like the, I was just another gladiator in an arena defending an idea against what turned out to be two opponents who had the entire audience on their side and all the armor, right? <laughs> all the weapons, all the armor and all the audience. And then there was me and I'm like, wait, this isn't a fair fight, you know? <laughs> But they got so excited about it, they were throwing their arrows and, and javelins at me with such ferocity. And I figured, well, this must be important. So somehow or other, I, I, I lived through it, you know, and uh, recovered from this experience. So, but I, I, uh, I much prefer the idea that what we're, what we're on about here is, you know, working together towards finding... Um, a way of framing ideas in such a way that we can all see how they all make sense and in some sort of way that makes sense to everyone at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, we could have this vision for American politics <laughs> or Israeli politics, maybe <laughs> something as well. And we know darn well that it's a long way off. But uh, still, this is kind of I guess I would say that is the objective function that I've tried to maximize at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then the last question is, if you could come up with one piece of advice to a new researcher, and uh, I mean, that's too general of a question, so it doesn't have to be, you know, all-encompassing grand advice. I mean, you can if you want, but maybe just one thing to keep in mind that you found useful uh, so, so one piece of advice to a new researcher. Well, um, don't let your coursework interfere with your education. <laughs> and um, 
you know, pursue something that you appreciate the value of yourself. I, I just, those, those are the things that I would say to somebody. I, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you're a PhD student and you're doing something um, that you don't fully appreciate the value of, then you need to rethink whether you're, you know, on the right track. Um, mm -hmm. You won't be motivated. You won't be excited about it. You won't be able to uh, pull that all nighter that you need to pull to finish the paper, you know? And um, so, yeah, for, at least for me, um, those are the things that uh, uh, have kept me going. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This was an amazing conversation. So um, I have my copy of Parallel Distributed Processing right here. And um, it was a big, it was a huge honor to get to talk with you, to really trace back some of these ideas to your PhD work. As I was preparing for this conversation, it was kind of amazing to see this path of ideas. Uh, and then also to talk about some things that you're interested in today, as well as just some great advice. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, you're very welcome. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts with you.